This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear T.C. Boyle's story, Chicksaloo, which was published in The New Yorker in 2004. The meteor, which was an estimated 60 yards across, never actually touched down. The force of its entry, the compression and superheating of the air beneath it, caused it to explode some 25,000 feet above the ground. But then the term explode hardly does justice to the event. The story was chosen by Lionel Shriver, who is the author of 12 novels, including We Need to Talk About Kevin, which won the Orange Prize for Fiction in 2005. Hi, Lionel. Hi. You told me when we were talking about doing this that you were a huge fan of T.C. Boyle's work. You'd reviewed several of his books. But when did you first become aware of his writing? I think the first book of his I read was The Tortilla Curtain, if I'm remembering correctly. That was about 1999. And I was struck by it. Not only is it a compelling book, but it's a rare novel about immigration that I think does justice to the topic. That is uh, both sides of the debate. I think he's a great technical writer, but the emphasis is always on content. And those are the authors to whom I am most drawn. In this particular story in Chicxulub, do you see a similar combination of technical information and content and approach? Yes, I think this story is a brilliant illustration of a melding of form and content. Mm -hmm. It is... You could call it experimental in its way. It uses a technique, but it's entirely in the service of emotional impact. I have rarely seen technique and content more perfectly interwoven. It's one of those rare uses of a literary device where you could never accuse the author of simply trying to show off. You never for once question why is he doing this, or get this out of my face, or just tell me the story. (laughs) (laughs) There was a review in the LA Times that said this was possibly the most moving story that Boyle had ever written. Do you agree with that? I do. I mean, I haven't read his entire collected works, but I will testify that when I read the story aloud for the first time, just to make sure I could deliver this today in a fluid fashion... (laughs) I read the last line. I couldn't even get it out. I burst into tears, Mm -hmm. which doesn't happen to me very often in my sedate late middle age. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk more after the story when everyone's crying. (laughs) (laughs) And now here's Lionel Shriver reading Chicxulub by T.C. Boyle. Chicxulub. My daughter is walking along the roadside late at night. Too late, really for a 17-year-old to be out alone, even in a town as safe as this. And it is raining, the first rain of the season. The streets slick with a fine, immiscible glaze of water and petrochemicals, so that even a driver in full possession of her faculties, a driver who hadn't consumed two apple martinis and three glasses of hitching post Pinot Noir before she got behind the wheel of her car, would have trouble keeping the thing out of gutters and the shrubbery off the sidewalk, and the highway median, for Christ's sake. But that's not really what I want to talk about. Or not yet, anyway. Have you heard of Tunguska in Russia? 
This was the site of the last known large-body impact on the Earth's surface nearly a hundred years ago. Or that's not strictly accurate. The meteor, which was an estimated 60 yards across, never actually touched down. The force of its entry, the compression and superheating of the air beneath it, caused it to explode some 25,000 feet above the ground. But then the term explode hardly does justice to the event. There was a detonation, a flash, a thunderclap, with a combustive power of 800 Hiroshima bombs. Thirty miles away, reindeer in their loping herds were struck dead by the blast wave, and the clothes of a hunter another thirty miles beyond that burst into flame even as he was poleaxed to the ground. Seven hundred square miles of Siberian forest were leveled in an instant. If the meteor had struck just five hours later, it would have exploded over St. Petersburg and annihilated every living thing in that glorious Baroque city. And this was only a rock. And it was only 60 yards across. My point? You'd better get down on your knees and pray to your gods, because each year this big spinning globe we ride intersects the orbits of some 20 million asteroids at least a thousand of which are more than half a mile in diameter. But my daughter, she's out there in the dark and the rain, walking home. Maureen and I bought her a car, a Honda Civic, the safest thing on four wheels. But the car was used, pre-owned in dealer speak. And as it happens, it's in the shop with transmission problems. And because she just had to see her friends and gossip and giggle and balance slick, multicolored clumps of raw fish and pickled ginger on conjoined chopsticks at the mall. Kimberly picked her up, and Kimberly will bring her home. Maddie has a cell phone, and theoretically she could have called us, but she didn't, or that's how it appears. And so she's walking, in the rain. And Alice K. Peterman, of 16 Briar Lane, white, divorced, a realtor with Hyperion, who has picked at a salad and left her glasses on the bar, loses control of the vehicle. It is just past midnight. I am in bed with a book, naked, and hardly able to focus on the clustered words and rigid descending paragraphs, because Maureen is in the bathroom slipping into the sheer black negligee I bought her at Victoria's Secret for her birthday and her every sound, the creak of the medicine cabinet on its hinges, the tap running, the susurrus of the brush at her teeth, electrifies me. I've lit a candle, and am waiting for Maureen to step into the room so that I can flick off the light. We had cocktails earlier, and a bottle of wine with dinner, and we sat close on the couch and shared a joint in front of the fire, because our daughter was out and we could do that with no one the wiser. I listened to the little sounds from the bathroom, seductive sounds, maddening. I am ready, more than ready. Hey, I call, pitching my voice low. Are you coming or not? You don't expect me to wait all night, do you? 
Her face appears in the doorway. The pale lobes of her breasts and the dark nipples visible through the clinging black silk. Oh, are you waiting for me? She says, making a game of it. She hovers at the door, and I can see the smile creep across her lips, the pleasure of the moment drawing it out. Because I thought I might go down and work in the garden for a while. It wouldn't take long, a couple of hours maybe. You know, spread a little manure, bank up some of the mulch on the roses. You'll wait for me, won't you? Then the phone rings. We stare blankly at each other through the first two rings, and then Maureen says, I'd better get it. And I say, no, no, forget it. It's nothing. It's nobody. But she's already moving. Forget it, I shout. And her voice drifts back to me. What if it's Maddie? Then I watch her put her lips to the receiver and whisper, Hello? The night of the Tunguska explosion, the skies were unnaturally bright across Europe. As far away as London, people strolled in the parks past midnight and read novels out of doors while the sheep kept right on grazing and the birds stirred uneasily in the trees. There were no stars visible, no moon, just a pale quivering light, as if all the color had been bleached out of the sky. But of course that midnight glow and the fates of those unhappy Siberian reindeer were nothing at all compared to what would have happened if a larger object had invaded the Earth's atmosphere. On average, objects greater than a hundred yards in diameter strike the planet once every 5,000 years, and asteroids half a mile across thunder down at intervals of 300,000 years. 300,000 years is a long time in anybody's book. But if, when, such a collision occurs, the explosion will be in the million megaton range and will cloak the atmosphere in dust, thrusting the entire planet into a deep freeze and effectively stifling all plant growth for a period of a year or more. There will be no crops, no forage, no sun. There has been an accident. That is what the voice on the other end of the line is telling my wife. And the victim is Madeline Bine of 1337 Laurel Drive, according to the ID the paramedics found in her purse. The purse, with a silver clasp that has been driven half an inch into the flesh under her arm by the force of the impact, is a little thing, no bigger than a hardcover book. With a ribbon-thin strap, the same purse all the girls carry, as if it were part of a uniform. Is this her parent or guardian speaking? I hear my wife say, This is her mother. And then the bottom dropping out of her voice. Is she? Is she? They don't answer such questions, don't volunteer information, not over the phone. The next ten seconds are thunderous, cataclysmic, my wife standing there numbly with the phone in her hand as if it were some unidentifiable object she'd found in the street. While I fumble out of bed to search for my pants and my shoes, where are my shoes, the car keys, my wallet? This is the true panic, 
the loss of faith and control, the punch to the heart, and the struggle for breath. I say the only thing I can think to say, just to hear my own voice, just to get things straight. She was in an accident. Is that what they said? She was hit by a car. She's... They don't know. In surgery. What hospital? Did they say what hospital? My wife is in motion now, too. The negligee ridiculous, unequal to the task, and she jerks it over her head and flings it to the floor even as she snatches up a blouse, shorts, flip-flops, anything, anything to cover her nakedness and get her out the door. The dog is whining in the kitchen. There is the sound of rain on the roof, intensifying, hammering at the gutters. I don't bother with shoes. There are no shoes. Shoes do not exist. And my shirt hangs limply from my shoulders, misbuttoned, sagging, tails hanging loose. And we're in the car now, and the driver's side wiper is beating out of sync, and the night closing on us like a fist. And then there's Chicxulub. Sixty-five million years ago, an asteroid, or perhaps a comet, no one is quite certain, collided with the Earth on what is now the Yucatan Peninsula. Judging from the impact crater, which is 120 miles wide, the object, this big flaming ball, was some six miles across. When it came down, day became night, and that night extended so far into the future that at least 75% of all known species were extinguished, including the dinosaurs in nearly all their forms and array, and some 90% of the ocean's plankton, which in turn devastated the pelagic food chain. How fast was it traveling? The nearest estimates put it at 54,000 miles an hour, more than 60 times the speed of a bullet. Astrophysicists call such objects civilization enders and calculate the chances of a disaster of this magnitude will occur during any individual's lifetime at roughly 1 in 10,000, the same odds as dying in an auto accident in the next six months, or, more tellingly, living to be a 100 in the company of your spouse. All I see is windows, an endless grid of lit windows climbing one above the other into the night as the car shoots into the emergency vehicle's only lane and slides in hard against the curb. Both doors fling open simultaneously. Maureen is already out on the sidewalk, already slamming the door behind her and breaking into a trot, and I'm right on her heels. The key's still in the ignition and the light's stabbing at the pale underbelly of a diagonally parked ambulance. And they can have the car. Anybody can have it and keep it forever. If they'll just tell me that my daughter is all right. Just tell me, I mutter out of breath. Just tell me and it's yours. And this is a prayer, the first in a long discontinuous string, addressed to whoever or whatever may be listening. Overhead, The sky is having a seizure, black above, quicksilver below, the rain coming down in wind-blown arcs, and I wouldn't even notice but for the fact that we are suddenly, instantly, wet, 
our hair knotted and clinging, and our clothes stuck like flypaper to the slick tegument of our skin. In we come, side by side, through the doors that jolt back from us in alarm. And all I can think is that the hospital is a death factory, and that we have come to it like the walking dead, haggard, sallow, shoeless. My daughter, I say to the nurse at the admittance desk, she's... They called. You called. She's been in an accident. Maureen is at my side, tugging at the fingers of one hand as if she were trying to remove an invisible glove. A car. A car accident. Name? The nurse asks. About this nurse. She's young, Filipina, with opaque eyes and the bone structure of a cadaver. Every day she sees death and it blinds her. She doesn't see us. She sees a computer screen. She sees the TV monitor mounted in the corner and the shadows that pass there. She sees the walls, the floor, the naked light of the fluorescent tube. But not us. Not us. For one resounding moment that thumps in my ears and then thumps again, I can't remember my daughter's name. I can picture her leaning into the mound of textbooks spread out on the dining room table, the glow of the overhead light making a nimbus of her hair as she glances up at me with a glum look and a half-rueful smile, as if to say, it's all in a day's work for a teenager, Dad, and you're lucky you're not in high school anymore. But her name is gone. Maddie, my wife says. Madeline Bine. I watch, mesmerized, as the nurse's fleshless fingers maneuver the mouse, her eyes locked on the screen before her. A click, another click. The eyes lift to take us in, even as they dodge away again. She's still in surgery, she says. Where is it, I demand. What room? Where do we go? Maureen's voice cuts in then. Elemental, chilling. And it's not a question she's posing, not a statement or demand, but a plea. What's wrong with her? Another click, but this one is just for show. And the eyes never move from the screen. There was an accident, the nurse says. She was brought in by the paramedics. That's all I can tell you. It is then that I become aware that we are not alone that there are others milling around the room, other zombies like us, hurriedly dressed and streaming water till the beige carpet is black with it. And why, I wonder, do I despise this nurse more than any human being I've ever encountered? This young woman not much older than my daughter, with her hair pulled back in a bun and a white cap like a party favor perched atop it, who is just doing her job? Why do I want to reach across the counter that separates us and awaken her to a swift, sure knowledge of hate and fear and pain? Why? Ted, Maureen says, and I feel her grip at my elbow, and then we're moving again, hurrying, sweeping, practically running. 
out of this place, down a corridor under the glare of the lights that are a kind of death in themselves, and into a worse place, a far worse place. The thing that disturbs me about Chicxulub, aside from the fact that it erased the dinosaurs and wrought catastrophic and irreversible change, is the deeper implication that we, and all our works and worries and attachments, are so utterly inconsequential. Death cancels our individuality, we know that, yes. But ontogeny replicates phylogeny, and the kind goes on. Human life and culture succeed us. That, in the absence of God, is what allows us to accept the death of the individual. But when you throw Chicxulub into the mix, or the next Chicxulub, the Chicxulub that could come howling down to obliterate all and everything, even as your eyes skim the lines of this page. You're the parents. We're in another room, gone deeper now the loudspeakers murmuring their eternal incantations. Dr. Chandrasama to emergency, Dr. Bell, paging Dr. Bell. And here is another nurse, grimmer, older, with lines like the strings of a tobacco pouch pulled tight around her lips. She's addressing us, me and my wife. But I have nothing to say, either in denial or affirmation. If I claim Maddie as my own, and I'm making deals again, then I'm sure to jinx her. Because those powers that might or might not be, those gods of the infinite and the minute, will see how desperately I love her, and they'll take her away just to spite me for refusing to believe in them. Voodoo hoodoo santeria, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I hear Maureen's voice emerging from a locked vault, the single whispered monosyllable, and then, is she going to be all right? I don't have that information, the nurse says, and her voice is neutral, robotic even. This is not her daughter. Her daughter's at home, asleep in a pile of teddy bears, pink sheets, fluffy pillows, the nightlight glowing like the all-seeing eye of a sentinel. I can't help myself. It's that neutrality, that maddening clinical neutrality. And can't anybody take any responsibility for anything? What information do you have? I say, and maybe I'm too loud. Maybe I am. Isn't that your job, for Christ's sake, to know what's going on here? You call us up in the middle of the night. Our daughter's hurt. She's been in an accident. And you tell me you don't have any fucking information? People turn their heads. Eyes burn into us. They're slouched in orange plastic chairs, stretched out on the floor, praying, pacing, their lips moving in silence. They want information, too. We all want information. We want news, good news. It was all a mistake. Minor cuts and bruises. Contusions, that's the word. And your daughter, son, husband, grandmother, first cousin twice removed, will be walking through that door over there any minute. The nurse drills me with a look, and then she's coming out from behind the desk, 
a short woman, dumpy, almost a dwarf, and striding briskly to a door, which swings open on another room, deeper yet. If you'll just follow me, please, she says. Suddenly sheepish, I duck my head and comply. Two steps behind Maureen. This room is smaller, an examining room, with a set of scales and charts on the walls and its slab of a table covered with a sheet of antiseptic paper. Wait here, the nurse tells us, already shifting her weight to make her escape. The doctor will be in in a minute. What doctor? I want to know. What for? What does he want? But the door has already drawn closed. I turn to Maureen. She's standing there in the middle of the room, afraid to touch anything or to sit down or even to move for fear of breaking the spell. She's listening for footsteps, her eyes fixed on the door. I hear myself murmur her name, and then she's in my arms, sobbing, and I know I should hold her, know that we both need it, the human contact, the love and support. But all I feel is the burden of her. There is nothing and no one that can make this better, can't she see that? I don't want to console or be consoled. I don't want to be touched. I just want my daughter back. Maureen's voice comes from so deep in her throat that I can barely make out what she's saying. It takes a second to register, even as she pulls away from me, her face crumpled and red. And this is her prayer, whispered aloud. She's going to be all right, isn't she? Sure, I say. Sure she is. She'll be fine. She'll have some bruises, that's for sure, maybe a couple of broken bones even. And I trail off, trying to picture it. The crutches, the cast, the band-aids, the gauze. Our daughter returned to us in a halo of shimmering light. Maybe she broke her arm. If she could break her arm, that would... Or her leg, even her leg. But why would she be in surgery? Why would she be in surgery so long? Why? Why would that be? I don't have an answer to that. I don't want to have an answer. It was a car. Maureen says. Car, Ted. Car hit her. The room seems to tick and buzz with the fading energy of the larger edifice, and I can't help thinking of the conjuries of wires strung inside the walls, the cables bringing power to the X-ray lab, the EKG and EEG machines, the life support systems, and of the myriad pipes and the fluids that they drain. A car. 3,000 pounds of steel, chrome, glass, iron. What was she even doing walking like that? She knows better than that. My wife nods, the wet ropes of her hair beating at her shoulders like the flails of the penitents. She probably had a fight with Kimberly. I'll bet that's it. 
I'll bet anything. Where is that son of a bitch? I snarl. This doctor. Where is he? We are in that room, in that purgatory of a room, for a good hour or more. Twice I thrust my head out the door to give the nurse an annihilating look. But there is no news, no doctor, nothing. And then, at quarter past two, the inner door swings open, and there he is, a man too young to be a doctor, an infant with a smooth, bland face and hair that rides a wave up off his brow, and he doesn't have to say a thing, not a word, because I can see what he's bringing us, and my heart seizes with the shock of it. He turns to Maureen, looks to me, then drops his eyes. I'm sorry, he says. When it comes, the meteor will punch through the atmosphere and strike the earth in the space of a single second, vaporizing on impact and creating a fireball that will in that moment achieve temperatures of 60,000 degrees Kelvin, or ten times the surface reading of the sun. If it is a Chicxulub size and it hits one of our land masses, some 200,000 cubic kilometers of the Earth's surface will be thrust up into the atmosphere, even as the thermal radiation of the blast sets fire to the Earth's cities and forests. This will be succeeded by seismic and volcanic activity on a scale unknown in human history. And then the dark night of cosmic winter. If it should land in the sea, as the Chicxulub meteor did, it would spew superheated water into the atmosphere instead, extinguishing the light of the sun and triggering the same scenario of seismic catastrophe and eternal winter while simultaneously sending out a rippling ring of water three miles high to rock the continents as if they were saucers in a dishpan. So what does it matter? What does anything matter? We are powerless. We are bereft. And the gods, all the gods of all the ages combined, are nothing but a rumor. The gurney is the focal point in a room of gurneys, people laid out as if there'd been a war, the beaked noses of the victims poking up out of the maze of sheets like a series of topographic blips on a glaciated plain. These people are alive still, fluids dripping into their veins, machines monitoring their vital signs, nurses hovering over them like ghouls, but they'll be dead soon, all of them. That much is clear. But the gurney, the one against the back wall with the sheet pulled up over the impossibly small and reduced form, this is all that matters. The doctor leads us across the room, speaking in a low voice of internal injuries, a ruptured spleen, trauma, the brain stem and I can barely control my feet. Can I tell you how hard it is to lift this sheet? 
thin percale, and it might as well be made of lead, iron, iridium. Might as well be the repository of all the dark matter in the universe. The doctor steps back, hands folded before him. The entire room, or triage ward, or whatever it is, holds its breath. Maureen moves in beside me till our shoulders are touching, till I can feel the flesh and the heat of her pressing into me. And I think of this child we made together, this thing under the sheet, and the hand clenches at the end of my arm, the fingers there, prehensile, taking hold. The sheet draws back millimeter by millimeter, the slow striptease of death. And I can't do this. I can't. Until Maureen lunges forward and jerks the thing off in a single violent motion. It takes us a moment. The shock of the bloated and discolored flesh, the crusted mat of blood at the temple, and the rag of the hair, this obscene violation of everything we know and expect and love. Before the surge of joy hits us. Maddie is a redhead, like her mother. And though she's 17, she's as rangy and thin as a child, with oversized hands and feet. And she never did pierce that smooth, sweet run of flesh beneath her lower lip. I can't speak. I'm rushing still with the euphoria of this new mainline drug I've discovered, soaring over the room, the hospital, the whole planet. Maureen says it for me. This is not our daughter. Our daughter is not in the hospital. Our daughter is asleep in her room beneath the benevolent gaze of the posters on the wall, Brittany and Brad and Justin, her things scattered around her as if laid out for a rummage sale. Our daughter has, in fact, gone to Hanasushi at the mall, as planned, and Kimberly has driven her home. Our daughter has, unbeknownst to us or anyone else, Fudge the rules a bit. The smallest thing in the world, nothing really. The sort of thing every teenager does without thinking twice. She has loaned her ID to her second best friend, Christy Cherwin, because Christy is 16, and Christy wants to see, is dying to see, the movie at the Cineplex with Brad Pitt in it, the one rated NC-17. Our daughter doesn't know that we've been to the hospital, doesn't know about Alice K. Peterman and the Pinot Noir and the glasses left on the bar. Doesn't know that even now the phone is ringing at the Cherwins. I am sitting on the couch with a drink, staring into the ashes of the fire. Maureen is in the kitchen with a mug of Ovaltine, gazing vacantly out the window where the first streaks of light have begun to limb the trunks of the trees. I try to picture the Cherwins. They've been to the house a few times, Ed and Lucinda. And I draw a blank until a backlit scene from the past presents itself, 
a cookout at their place. The adults gathered around the grill with gin and tonics, the radio playing some forgotten song. The children, our daughters, riding their bikes up and down the cobbled drive, making a game of it, spinning, dodging, lifting the front wheels from the ground even as their hair fans out behind them and the sun crashes through the trees. Flip a coin ten times, and it could turn up heads ten times in a row, or not once. The rock is coming, the new Chicxulub, hurtling through the dark and the cold to remake our fate. But not tonight. Not for me. For the Cherwins, it's already here. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. That was Lionel Shriver reading Chicxulub by T.C. Boyle. The story appeared in The New Yorker in March of 2004 and was included in Boyle's collections Tooth and Claw and Other Stories and T.C. Boyle's Stories 2, both published by Viking. So, Lionel, this story is divided into two different parts, obviously, as you pointed out, that it's a combination of technique and content. We have the story, we have Ted and Maureen in the accident, and we have these musings on asteroids hitting the Earth. Why do you think Boyle chose to break it apart that way? Well, he's talking about annihilation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And annihilation occurs in the big and the small. And the experience, the subjective experience of losing a child has to be like the end of the world. It's a perfect parallel. But what he reminds us is that there are both kinds of annihilation lying in wait for all of us 
potentially at every turn. You know, what I like about the asteroid stuff, it's not just a metaphor. Mm -hmm. It's real. I know T.C. Boyle well enough that these are well-researched details. <laughs> and fact-checked by the <laughs> Probably New Yorker. Probably <laughs> fact-checked by the New Yorker. It's not all Wikipedia. Yeah. Even those odds, which I found just shocking. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that makes this work. We're talking about reality. It's not some little story. At any time now, Chicxulub 2 could hit. As we are speaking, it could hit. Mm -hmm. And at any time now, the phone could ring. And who's dead? It is amazing we managed to function in the world. And we managed to function through a form of denial Always. of not facing these things. Yes, unless we're reading short stories. Unless we're reading this story. One of the remarkable things about the story is you get to the end and it's all wrong. And everything that you have believed turns out to be different. Except it isn't wrong. Someone is getting the phone call. There is a dead daughter. It just doesn't happen to be his daughter today. Mm -hmm. But there is a dead daughter. Stories like this function partly because we all have people we love, even if we don't have children. And I don't have children, and I still responded to this story powerfully because there are people in my life whom I love and whose death would devastate me. Unless you live completely isolated, you have someone out there whose death could destroy you. What's interesting to me, though, is when you hit that ending, you feel some relief. Yes, but it's a false relief. That's what's so good about that last line. That's what makes you weep, or me weep, because the relief was wrong. The relief is false. The relief is just because you've formed this temporary alliance with this narrator. But... Why should you be happy that it's not his daughter and it's someone else's? Indeed, you still suffer that loss, and he's reminding you of the universality of that loss and that it will hit you and it will hit other people you know that this is the nature of things. In just as Chicxulub itself, the fact that we are in the way of all these pieces of space junk, that's real. The imminent loss is real, and there is no relief. There's only reprieve. Right. Well, in terms of the falsity of the relief, I hit that point, and you can go one direction, which is the grief is real. Mm. The grief has hit someone. Or you can say both of these girls are fictional. So it pulls you out in a way that you have to look at the situation from a different angle. Either it's a reprieve or you can sort of put it behind you in a way. It doesn't let you off the hook for the people whose death could ruin your life. Mm -hmm. That's where you get back to the importance of the Shiksalub interludes, that he is talking about reality. You don't get away from that. You don't get away from mortality. So you can call those girls fictional, but give me a newspaper and I'll find any number of corollaries yeah. that are real. Boyle, in the introduction to the Stories 2 collection, actually writes about a reading he gave of this story in Miami, where about a third of the way through, a woman in the audience just started sobbing. And he writes, 
her terrible harrowing grief riveted us all, I wanted to stop and tell her not to worry, that it was just make-believe, a kind of voodoo charm to keep the randomness of the world at bay, but there was no stopping and no consolation. She'd lived the story and I hadn't. Mm. Well, he talks about the sort of daunting power of that and the daunting responsibility of it too. And is that something that you think every writer should feel, this kind of responsibility for taking on tragedies of others, for representing things that may have happened to others, for eliciting that kind of emotional response? Well, I guess responsibility wouldn't be my first choice of words. I would say credit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if I were T.C. Boyle, I'd be patting myself on the back. (laughs) I had that effect on an audience member, though I'm sure it was a little bit bewildering to know how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. It's funny, those... Chicxulub sections and the reality to which they refer. I think that's where I find my sense of relief in the story because I find the prospect of such obliteration not only of my own small life but of everything, all human life, strangely relaxing. Well, I asked Tom what he was thinking about when he wrote the story and he said, in the absence of God, I've spent most of my life looking for significance for us as individuals and as a species in the face of the immensity and randomness of the universe. What do our concerns matter? What do our brains matter? What does anything matter? He doesn't answer the questions. Do you think that the story answers them in any way? No, but then fiction almost always poses questions rather than answers them. That's really the job. Well, I guess, you know, one answer could be it doesn't matter. That's why I find it so calming. It lets us off the hook for absolutely everything. Mm Mm-hmm. So if that's what it all ends in, what does it matter how my next novel is received? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Ted actually asked the same question. What does it matter? What does anything matter? We're powerless. We are bereft. But bereft implies loss, which implies that we're still around to experience it. Yes. And implies attachment. That's what Chicxulub offers, is the end of attachment and the end of experiencing loss. Yeah. There's a cleanliness to it. Though what you feel at the end of the story isn't cleanliness. No. No, because we're all still here if we're still reading the story. And that's one of the most distinguishing features of being human is the experience of loss. If nothing means anything to you, then you don't care about anything going away. Anyone in your life, anything in your life, anything around you. That's why being so moved at the end of a story like that, it's actually a wonderful feeling, even though it it is a form of sadness. It's also an acknowledgement of love. So you don't think the message is that we should stop caring? No. Because we're so vulnerable. I don't think so. I think it is an embrace of mourning. It's interesting that these parents come home and they're not clinging to their daughter and celebrating. They're emptied out. Yes, I think partly because they realize that they have made an ugly deal with the devil. It would be different if it turned out that it was only a dog that got run over. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That would be sad. (laughs) But someone's daughter has died. And the feeling you get in that final paragraph is one of a certain amount of guilt. That joy they felt on seeing the body was morally wrong, yeah, right? Inevitable. Of course, a parent would feel this huge flush of relief, but 
someone else has to go through what they were just spared. And what they just went through. Yeah, so they've actually experienced what the Cherwins are about to experience. And they wouldn't wish that on anyone. One thing about this story and about, well, it has one of the hallmarks of Boyle's stories, which is he draws in things from real life, whether they're headlines or whether they're scientific discoveries, or and blends that with a fictional, smaller, personal narrative. I think that's something that you do a little bit, too. I do it a lot. Yeah. I recognize him as a kindred spirit. Yeah. And I think that you have identified one of the things that we have in common. I'm a big newspaper reader. What's the appeal of that for you as a writer? Well, it's anchoring. It makes the fictions feel more useful to me, more integrated with the world, not floating off as some kind of abstract distraction. You know, you can pretty much divide fiction into whether or not it is meant for an entertainment that pulls you out of real life. And I don't blame people who just want to go off in the cloud somewhere and read something entertaining. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I try to make my real-life fiction entertaining as well. But I'm more interested in fiction that integrates with reality and uses bits and pieces of reality a little bit like the way a visual artist will use objects in a collage, you know, found pieces of junk. And I think that that's what a lot of fiction writers also do. You know, a newspaper is nothing but a set of found objects. Well, thank you so much, Lionel. It's been a pleasure. Lionel Shriver is the author most recently of the novels The New Republic and Big Brother. She won the BBC National Short Story Award for her story Khalifi Creek, which was published in The New Yorker in 2013. T.C. Boyle is the author of 25 books of fiction, including his most recent novels, The Harder They Come and San Miguel. His stories have been appearing in The New Yorker since 1993. You can download 99 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the tablet edition at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Online and in the tablet edition, you can hear the short stories in the magazine read by their authors. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.